0: The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au Okay, everyone. So uh, (coughs) let's carry on with the uh, questions for tonight. So uh, we'll see if there are any good questions or not. That's really up to you, you know, if the questions are good. So the quality of the evening will uh, depend on your uh, um, questioning. So we'll see what happens. All right. So we'll start from the top. Dear Ajahn, there are occasions that the mind has mindfulness, but still goes ahead and follows our desires. Can you please advise, please? sir? So uh, mindfulness comes in many different degrees uh, yeah. and uh, the very fact that you are able to see your desires means that you have a degree of mindfulness. Uh, uh, so that that's already good uh, because it means that you have a degree of presence, you know what's going on, uh, you can at least monitor your mind to some extent. Uh, but really strong mindfulness is only really possible when desire dies down. Uh, Because desire, by its very nature, is in the future. Desire is about where you want to be. Uh, You are not where you want to be. Uh, That is kind of the the definition of desire almost. Uh, So um, uh, the idea here is like a gradual declining of desires. Uh, You want to have enough mindfulness when you start your meditation to be able to be aware of roughly to be in the present, not to be too much in the past and the future. This is what we're trying at the beginning of the meditation. We're trying just to let go and allow the mind to kind of emerge in the future. And um, uh, so then you want to have as little desire as possible. There's always going to be a remnant of desire there. And then it is really the focus on the breath, uh, the meditation object, whatever it is, that reduces that remnant of desire in the mind uh. The uh, Pali word that is found in the uh, Satipatthana Sutta is uh, Vinayaloki Abhijadomanasang. Uh, and that is the same thing you find in the four right efforts. Uh, uh, abhijadomanasang, uh, n- uh, how does it go again? Abhijadomanasang, na anuva, something like that. Yeah. So this, the similar kind of phrase you find in the four right efforts uh, that you find in the Satipatthana Sutta. Uh, and that is actually very significant. Uh, because what it means is that you overcome Abhijja, domanasa, desire and aversion. You, you overcome that inside of the four right efforts. And then you take that with you into the Satipatthana meditation. That's why it says Vinaya. vinna means having overcome these things. And so you take with you. And of course the four right efforts is not the complete overcoming of desire. That only happens during meditation. But it means that you overcome it to some extent, sufficiently, that mindfulness is established. Then, by staying with the satipatthanas, whether it's the body contemplation or just the breath or whatever, you actually overcome the remnant of desire. The deeper the mind goes, the less desire you have. That's why you feel increasingly peaceful as you practice your meditation. It means that desire is going down. We often talk about overcoming the will. Or choices in meditation the will is very closely connected to desire so desire and will really come down together uh, and then uh, gradually gradually overcome it uh. so uh, don't worry too much if you have occasional desires and meditation it is to be expected it would be a miracle if you had no desires at all in a meditation uh, you could come up here and sit on this seat and i could sit down there and listen to you instead uh. that would be cool wouldn't it uh. We kind of just reverse roles a little bit. Uh, there's no absolute necessity that uh, the monastics should always teach. Sometimes it's nice to have lay people to teach. Uh, some lay people are very experienced uh, and it's nice to listen. Sometimes at Bodhinada Monastery, we invite lay people to give a talk to the monks, and that's really nice actually. It uh, gives an alternative feeling to, to things. Uh, and if you ever get uh, asked to teach, uh, what will you say? Will you say yes, thank you? Yeah, finally is yes. mine. Now I can teach. Or or would you feel a bit shy, or would you feel let's say Ajahn Brahm was in the audience and now you have to give a talk and to Arjun Brahm he's listening to you. <laughs> oh, that'd be scary. So the what you should do if you if really if you feel if you have a lot of understanding of the dumb mind you get asked to teach generally speaking i would say you should accept that possibility yeah? because you learn so much from being a teacher yeah? one of the greatest things you can do if you want to learn about mind, you understand what your the holes in your knowledge are you understand that very quickly when you have to teach and yeah? people ask you questions i will sit there and i will ask you questions how how does that feel <laughs> that'd be interesting wouldn't it so uh Anyway, that's a bit of a sidetrack. It's not exactly what the question is about, but uh, uh, there you are. Ajahn, yeah. delighted to hear of your soon travels to England. Okay, <laughs> may you travel safely. Thank you for uh, glossary and four-element information. I found the other day I experienced, uh, saw a bright glow very early into the first ten minutes of sitting here. Uh, normally it takes me days or many hours. Uh, well done, that is wonderful. Uh, bright glow sounds like, uh, sounds like you're on the right track. Uh, the glow went away, as I believe now after your teaching today, I had overly lax occurred. <laughs> okay, all right, well, that's better than uh, overly tense. At least you're kind of chilling, so that's good. Uh, also, I have been practicing death meditation and I witnessed uh, a four legged animal beginning to eat me. Uh, I was not alarmed, just observed, and now. Reflecting, I also witness uh, the water element uh, leaving and the bloating before. uh, Interesting, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so the death contemplation, you can use the animal eating. That's what I would call the cemetery contemplation, really. The death contemplation can be done in many ways. The main point of death contemplation is just the idea that you are not going to be here anymore. That's the main idea. You're going to be gone from this world. And once you know you're gonna be gone from this world, then this world loses its interest to you. That is the main idea. Because almost all our desires and attachments and ill will, almost all our defilements are connected to this world. Once you're you're on a deathbed, you just let it all go. This is the beauty of dying well. A person that dies well is actually a very peaceful person. But instead of waiting until you actually die, do it now, bring it into the present. It's actually not that hard to do at least a little bit, uh, yeah. fully it may be hard, but a little bit is not that hard to do. Huh? And it's a simple contemplation that uh, if you uh, want to be ready when you actually are on your deathbed, uh, if you want to be ready then, the only time you can make that readiness is now. Huh? Because you don't know when you're going to die. So the only time you can be ready is now. Huh? You might very well be dead in two hours. You just have no idea. And so now is the time to be ready huh? And once you kind of get that into your head, actually now, I really have to be ready now because I don't know when I'm going to die. If I'm not ready now, I'm never going to be ready. Once you get that into your mind, it starts to work. And then you feel a sense of coolness in the mind. It's actually very beautiful when the death contemplation works. You start to feel cool because you're giving up so much. And then it has this double benefit. First of all, you become peaceful now because... It, it makes you give up and it gives rise to awareness at the same time. This is the beauty of death meditation. Those two things that are so hard to combine in meditation, letting go and awareness. Usually we let go, we fall asleep, or we are aware and we are stressed out. You kind of you know, jump between the restlessness and, and sloth and torpor. But in this case, no, both of them come together. And this is the power of the death meditation. And so you do that. It has a double advantage, it makes the meditation possible now, and it makes you ready for when your time is up, and you're going to die anyway. It's a beautiful double uh, benefit of these things. uh. Only do it, however, if you feel reasonably at ease. If it really freaks you out, the idea of death, then then don't do it. Some people find it very hard to deal with this. uh. But it is important to try gently with yourself, because uh, uh, the buddha says we should be doing death contemplation really it's everywhere in the suttas so if we're going to be the good disciples we should uh, follow that advice so good i'm glad you're getting getting some th- somewhere in the meditation i'm really happy to hear that and uh, so excellent dear Ajahn, what are the reasons for undeveloped jhana stages. Uh, my mind does not experience rapture, and it goes to sukha. Many thanks. Um, all right, okay, so uh, I guess there are different ways of experiencing happiness, uh, yeah, and usually rapture is uh, comes together with the sukha, it's called uh, Vivekaja Pitti Sukha in the first jhana, you can't really have one without the other. Uh, uh, sukha, the way it is described in the um, is it is a development from rapture. Sukkah is a deeper experience than rapture. But of course, the problem with the word sukkah, it just means happiness, it's very, very broad. But if you use it as a technical term, of meditation term, it means the happiness that comes when the rapture calms down, it becomes very peaceful. When that combines, that is called sukkah. It's a profound sense of satisfaction and contentment that you experience. That is the kind of happiness that leads you to samadhi because it's not disturbing yeah? it has nothing to do with the body here yeah? the body is left behind now the senses are left behind uh, and you have this deep sense of contentment and you feel wow this is it uh, and your mind kind of wee rushes towards samadhi here yeah? so these are just words yeah so uh, um, if you as long as you are happy that's what matters uh. if you don't experience rapture in the sense of you know the currents or the feelings in the body that's perfectly okay as long as you are developing the sense of contentment and happiness one way or the other becoming more and more peaceful going deeper and deeper then you're on the right track two things that you should always be on the outlook i mentioned before in meditation two things that should be developed together peace and happiness P, these two things should be getting deeper and deeper and more profound as your meditation evolves. These are the two main characteristics of meditation. Uh, there are more characteristics, but uh, these are the main. The characteristics are things like mindfulness improving, etc. Uh, um, etc. Et uh, uh, but uh, that's the most important part. Uh. So uh, it sounds to me like you're doing well, uh, because if it goes to sukka, it's good. Uh, so you're on the right track, uh, so carry on. Yeah, there's many different handwritings today. That's a good news. Yesterday there was one handwriting. that kept occurring again and again and again. So I knew there's one person, many questions today. Many different handwritings. That's kind of my. I prefer that one. <laughs> it's very strange when you it's, you get kind of. Um, anyway, enough. I'm gonna. <laughs> Let's just get on with the questions, dear Ajahn, Appreciate your deep knowledge and wisdom of the Dhamma. Uh, many thanks. Uh, when practicing compassion with certain people, uh, I find it very hard to feel compassion to, wo- towards them. Uh, do I still need to continue with it? Uh, or are there any steps that I need to follow before practicing compassion? Many thanks. Uh, yes, uh, this is to be expected. There are some people it's much more difficult to have compassion towards. Uh, the people who are most difficult are the ones who you feel might be a bit abusive yeah, or harsh or who don't treat you well. Especially if you have, some people have had very difficult relationship with people in the past, very difficult to have compassion for those people. So start with the easier targets, start with the easier ones. Uh, but the trick is always the same. The trick for feeling compassion uh, is to understand these things I mentioned before, it is not personal. That's one of the very powerful tricks, yeah? It's about that person, they are the one. If someone is, has bad qualities, they are the one who have the problem. Uh you don't have to make it your problem It's nothing to do with you it's just coming out of them because of their conditioning and they are trapped in those things so you just have to reiterate reuse this perception again and again develop this perception and as you develop this perception there comes a point when the compassion you start to feel compassion suddenly because you actually understand that actually it is them who has the problem not you and then that changes everything around instead of feeling sorry for yourself don't feel bad if you feel sorry for it. It's okay to feel sorry for yourself. We all feel that sometimes uh, when we are kind of uh, getting too close to difficult people. That's all right. Uh, but you gradually turn it around. Uh, and that is where kind of things, really the magic starts to happen. Uh, and then there's no one in the whole world uh, you can't have compassion towards. Uh. Yeah, you. you may watch something on the news or whatever, I don't know where you get your news from, and you may think that there are certain people in the world who are really evil and really bad, and they cause wars and whatever. But after a while you start to understand that we are all puppets in a sense. Even the so-called puppet masters are puppet in turn. There is no puppet master here. Everyone is a puppet. And the puppet master is the defilements, the puppet master is our past lives, the program that is written into us through past life experiences and these things. That is the real puppet master. And though some people in the world have more power, they in themselves in return are under the influence of even greater powers, powers that are invisible, powers you can't even see. And so we have no freedom, people have no freedom in the world. Because they have no freedom, You can't really blame them for the conduct. They are trapped in their personality here. They are prisoners of their personality here. Don't be proud of your personality. Your personality is a trap. Yeah, that binds you. That ties you down. If you feel, yeah, my personality, I've studied really hard. I have a PhD here. I have a PhD, you know that? (laughs) Now I'm getting trapped by that personality straight away. So this is the... Actually, I don't. I don't I, no, let's not go away. Uh, but the point is that we are trapped by these things. We feel proud of who we are. We feel good about who we are. We don't see the limits of these things. And then we kind of indulge in the sense of self and all of that. Actually, it's all the trap. It's all the problem. And then you start to have compassion for people. So just develop it slowly. Do it where you can. Yeah, gradually, gradually. Have compassion for yourself. When you start to see the trap in others, you start to see how you are trapped as well. Because you are also trapped. The weird thing—it feels like we are free to do whatever we want, but that's actually not really the case. Uh, yeah, all these past conditions come together, uh, and you try to make the best out of it by reflecting carefully, using the Buddhist teachings. Uh, but really, all the conditioning is what controls us into the to a very large extent. Uh, there's very little free will. I look back on who I was uh, thirty years ago, uh, yeah, or more. Yeah. <laughs> I, you, when you get older, you have a long memory, you can remember many years, that's kind of scary, isn't it? Wow, 40, I can even remember 40 years ago, 40. don't want to, um And um, you can see, in retrospect, you can see how trapped you were. What other choices did I have when I was 15 or 20 years old from what I did? Did I really have the perspective to really make any significantly different choices? Not really. Yeah. I was trapped. I'd be brought up in a certain way. I had certain parents, certain school teachers, a certain society that I lived in. I used to live like Norwegian food. Yeah, why did I like Norwegian food? Because I grew up in Norway. I used to like skiing. I did a lot of skiing. Why? Because there was snow everywhere. So I kind of everyone skied. So you just ski here. Was it voluntar- voluntary? Voluntary? <laughs> you know, it's kind of it is voluntary in one way, but in another way, you are just conditioned. If you know what I mean. And so you start to understand how trapped you are, uh, how all your personal characteristics are formed by all of these conditions. Uh, and the vast majority of that conditioning comes from past lives. Uh, you can't even see it. Uh. Why were you born with certain personal characteristics? Why was I different from my brother? We grew up with the same parents, but we were quite different characters. My sister is different. Uh, why? Well, because of this comes from deep conditioning in the past. Then uh, you start to have a sense of. Uh, Compassion for people. Uh, one of the stories that I uh, often tell is a story of a uh, uh, one of the um, people on the committee of the BSWA in Perth, uh, Buddhist Society of Western Australia, uh, and he did. He was a Catholic originally, and gradually he became more and more of a Buddhist. Uh, and he did a past life regression. Uh, yeah, he was one of these kind of fairly ordinary Australians. Uh, he was in the navy and all these kind of things. Uh, and he did a past life regression. He was actually quite a successful businessman as well. And he was settling to the mining industry here. Yeah. Everything in Western Australia is about the mining industry here. Yeah. Except if you're a monk, yeah. We had, we had, actually, we are mining the mind, right? Mining the mind. That's a nice a nice one, okay. So, <laughs> so um, he went to a past life regressionist uh, and then he started to recall all of these things, right? All of these kind of details about his about a past life. And it was kind of a lot, right? Names and places and family members and where he had come from in the past and the jobs that he had and the business he built up. It was a lot of information. Huh? And so he came out of this regression. And this regressionist, who, is, by the way, I know very well, is a very, very nice man. He's like this kind of old grandfatherly person. Yeah, He, he looks like he's going to care for you. Huh? He's a really nice fellow. And so he tells him, well, this is the things you remembered. And he said, no way, that's just denial. It's just kind of, this is just this is just kind of make-believe. Yeah, I just made it up. It was a complete denial that there might be something to this. But then later on, he sort of started to feel uneasy. Maybe I should check it out. Maybe I should check kind of the records in Western Australia to see if there's something to this. So he started to check these records And then after checking for a while, he thought, well, maybe, you know, he he found some names that seemed kind of familiar to he went back to the regressionist. Well, um, well, maybe he did the second regression first. I think he did the second regression first. So he did the second one, even more details. Then he went back into these records. uh, And then he found someone uh, who's, whose kind of details fitted really, really well with his life. Uh, Someone who had migrated from Ireland, a very, very common, lots of Irish people here in Australia, Irish background, uh, had been in the military. He could recognize his uniform, right, from the military. He had seen that in his regression. Uh, Then he had established a farm, built up the farm. Uh, He went with this man to that place where the farm was, uh, And he said, it's supposed to be here, but actually there was no house there anymore. And of course it turned out the house had been demolished not so long before and rebuilt. So There was many things that kind of turned out to be very kind of remarkably close. Names fell into place, people, all of these kind of things. The shape of the house, right? He remembered so many details. And there comes a point when it becomes very unlikely to be coincidence. There's just too many things that kind of fit in. And he said he was forced to believe in past lives from then on, that was his personal experience. He felt, how can these coincidences actually not be a remember a memory of past life? There's too many things. There's no way this could be a coincidence. That's what he felt. I don't know what the statistician would say, maybe they would say, oh, it could still be coincidence. But he, that's what he felt. And so he was forced, even though he had uh, never believed in past lives before, uh, even though he wanted to reject it, because for him it was really alien idea, he hadn't come to Buddhism to remember his past life, he had come to Buddhism to learn meditation practice and these kind of things. Uh. And uh, But the, then what he said, what was very interesting, uh, and this is what was so fascinating about this, uh, he said that in that past life uh, he had been working really, really hard, building up a farm in Australia with his bare hands, uh, You know, in those days, there wasn't so much equipment that you could use. You really have to use your physical labor, working really, really hard. And on his deathbed, he had been very proud of what he had done. Yeah, building up this farm back in the 19th century. Wow, so proud of this. But now he realized in this life, he was also working really, really hard. And he had always thought that this was his free will. I want to work hard. Yeah, this is my character. Work hard and be successful. This is what people do in this world. But now he saw the connection, he could see how his character traits were just carrying over from one life to the next one. He wasn't working hard out of free will at all. That was just an illusion. He was just following the character trait patterns from the past life, carrying over into this life. And when he saw that, he saw it was just a personal characteristic carry on, it scared him because he realized instead of being free will, it was a trap. It was just forced to be like that because those were the character traits of a past life. And this is what it means to be trapped. It feels like we have free will. It feels like we're doing things in this life because we want to do them. That's what it feels like. But actually, when you start to see the larger pictures, A lot of that is just an illusion maybe all of it is an illusion we're just playing out the program deep thing conditioned into us in the in the past and now we have no choice but playing it out that was his experience is it true i don't know if it's true but it sounds incredibly likely from a buddhist perspective it sounds very likely that this is actually what happened so this is the Idea. And when you see that, uh, and when you see people do bad things in this life, uh, when you understand the conditioning, uh, how can you not have compassion for people? uh? Is it really their fault? uh? How can we blame people uh, if they're just playing out a program? uh? All right. Dear Rajan, thank you for your insightful and inspiring teachings. Uh, Yay! Please come, more notes like that. These are really nice notes. I like these ones. uh. Is it possible for non Buddhists to achieve enlightenment? Uh, Thank you. Uh, Okay, so uh, there is at least one non Buddhist who achieved enlightenment. Uh, Yeah, that's already happened. Uh, You know which one that was? Uh, The Buddha. Yeah, the Buddha was not really a Buddhist. The Buddha just practicing something and he became he became enlightened, right? And then afterwards, okay, now we call him Buddhist because the Buddha and awakening, and all that. So do you need to be. Remember, a Buddhist is just a name, right? It's just a word, it's a label we put on people. Huh? But uh, the point really is that what you need to do to become enlightened is to practice the Noble Eightfold Path. That is what you need to become enlightened. Uh, and whether you call that person a Buddhist uh, or you call them, whatever you call them doesn't really matter uh, as long as they have those right views. Uh, of course, there are many things they cannot do. Yeah, There are many things you cannot believe in. You cannot believe in a creator God or a permanent God uh, because if you believe in that, then that's going to block you from achieving these things. Uh, but... Uh, You know, you don't actually have to call yourself a Buddhist. You can call yourself whatever. What I'm, I am whatever. (laughs) And yeah, that is not the point. But you have to have certain factors in your mind, certain practices. Otherwise, you're not you're not going to be able to achieve enlightenment. It is what we do that matters, not how we label ourselves. Now, you could argue, of course, that those things that we do, that is precisely what it means to be a Buddhist. You could argue that, yeah? And in that case, you have to be a Buddhist. But sometimes, lots of Buddhists in the world who are never going to get enlightened, because they have wrong view. How many Buddhists in this world have wrong view? Probably the vast majority, I would say. Looking at what people say, looking at how people explain the Dhamma, sometimes you just roll your eyes. (laughs) And... uh, So this is the problem, yeah, because Buddhism is an ancient religion, has diverged into many, many different directions. Uh, Some of those directions are good, but some of them are not really good at all. Uh, And sometimes I think it's better to be an atheist or not believe in anything than to believe in some of these Buddhist ideas that people have. Uh, All right. But of course, the ideas you get here, they are spot on. Uh, it's always like that, isn't it? It's all—I mean, everyone believes that they kind of—they have an idea of the truth. It's always like that. You can't—you know—I wouldn't say these things if I thought, thought they were completely false. Uh, but uh, good to be humble at the same time. So uh, I apologize for my lack of humility here. <coughs> Dear Ajahn, can lay people enter the jhanas? There are a lot of teachers like Lee Brazington and Shaila Catherine who teach the jhanas and it seems very easy to get into those states. Uh, I am very skeptical about this. Uh, what are your views, Venable? Um, yes, there are all kinds of different jhanas. There are jhana light, there are jhana medium, and there are jhana really super duper heavy. and. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Ajahn Brahm teaches the, as far as I'm concerned, Ajahn Brahm teaches the real jhanas, uh, not the kind of jhana light. And be, why? Well, simply because the jhanas that he teaches are extremely profound. And they, because the jhanas, as I mentioned the other day, they are called superhuman states. They're called the, uh, uh, they call the, um, um, uh, the kind, Arya says a distinction in knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones because they have these kind of names because they're called the Sambodha Sukha the happiness of awakening, they are very close to awakening, they should be extremely profound not some kind of simple little things so to me this idea that jhanas are easy and we can get into them it's misunderstanding it, in fact if you do understand the jhanas in that way, you will never get enlightened, uh, because you haven't got enough power in your mind to achieve these things. Uh, you're actually destroying the path to awakening. Uh, I've heard the arguments be that, oh yeah, it's good that we have jhana light, because that means more people can get the jhanas. But, <laughs> but <laughs> That's kind of missing the point. You're destroying the path at the same time. That's, that's the, real, the real problem there. Uh, in fact, it's very interesting that the jhanas are so profound, because what it means is that uh, When you practice the path, there is so much joy, so much happiness, so much tranquility, so much meaning, so much power of the mind to be had even before you come to the jhanas. You can enjoy ordinary meditation, medium meditation, yeah, and then there's even more down the track. There's this incredible states called the jhanas. Remember, there are states beyond the ordinary human realm. You can, you can. assume that they're going to be life transforming when you get to these states uh, this is the point of these things uh, otherwise they are not really as special as they are claimed to be uh, so child uh, catherine i have actually met her a couple of times uh, she's a really nice lady and she she uh, seems to have very good meditation uh, and all of these things that's wonderful does she have the real jhanas uh, not entirely sure uh, libra is i would say definitely does not have the real jhanas, or um, at least the things that he calls jhanas are not jhanas. Uh, I don't know what exactly his meditation experiences are. Uh, But he's also a good meditator in many ways, right? Uh, So he's not... uh, We shouldn't kind of be too hard on these things. Uh, But the jhanas are profound. They are deep. Uh, And it's more likely you'll find it in the monastic life than in the lay life. Simply because, as a monastic, you have uh, renounced those things. to some extent, that stand in the way of jhanas. Even the majority of monastics will not get these things, uh, because they're very profound. Uh, But uh, that is where you're most likely to find it. Uh, So uh, I don't want to be too hard on these lay people. They are doing a lot of really, really good things. Uh, But uh, it is good that you have a degree of discernment about these things. So congratulations for discerning these things, uh, because actually it is important to uh, get these things roughly right. Oops. Okay. Okay, much appreciated for your teachings, Ajahn. One night you mentioned Zen mind, beginner's mind. Could you please elaborate on that? Is it the first mind that arises? Uh, thank you. Um, Zen Mind Begins Mind is actually a book that was written back in the 1970s and it was one of the few books that Ajahn Brahm said he read when he was a young monk. In those days there were no sutas in the monastery where he stayed they were just books by Carlos Castaneda and that kind of journey to Ixland. That was kind of some kind of uh, alternative spiritual teacher got nothing to do with Buddhism and he did a bit of drugs and all kind of things and uh, all this sort of stuff and then he had some kind of <laughs> mental things going on. Uh, I don't know what exactly what he did. Uh, and that's what they read in the monasteries in those days. No suttas. Uh, the closest they got was Zen mind, beginner's mind. Uh, <laughs> so those were the kind of the wild west days of Buddhism uh, in uh, in Thailand. Uh, the cowboy, cowboy monks. Uh, <laughs> And uh, gradually, they, because they didn't really know what they were doing. Fair enough, yeah. They're coming from the West, they didn't really know much about Buddhism, and the, uh, the Thai Sangha couldn't speak English, they couldn't speak Thai, so of course it's going to be a bit uh, difficult. But gradually, they would build up, and of course, Ajahn Brahm was one of those people who started reading the sutras, uh, self taught Pali, taught himself Pali. Uh, uh, Ajahn Brahm is this one of these really extraordinary, intelligent people. Uh, He's so humble, you wouldn't really know that he's intelligent, uh, unless you really know a little bit about him. Uh, (laughs) But he's really intelligent. uh, And so he, all of these kind of self-taught things. uh, And uh, so one of those books was Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And he he used that later on, because the idea is that when you go into meditation, when you do you should always have this beginner's mind. uh. One of the strange things about meditation is sometimes people have what you call Beginner's luck, it's not really luck is the wrong word, but beginner's mind. And actually they have all these marvelous experiences in the very first time, because they have no expectations. They don't know what's going to happen, so they're kind of just curious, they have an open mind. Okay, let's see what happens. And so they have some good results. And then after that, it never happens again. (laughs) Because they don't have the Zen mind, they don't have the beginner's mind. (laughs) So the idea is then to have that kind of mindset, we're always curious. Uh, Always don't really come with expectations to your meditation. Always being open to new experiences, different ways of seeing the world, right? Uh, Never get in that mind that is kind of bored with meditation, just does it as a ritual. Uh, Meditation can be a ritual for people, Uh, that's not really useful. Uh, Don't make it a ritual, then you're destroying the potential for meditation practice. Uh, Always have an open mind, Uh, always come to meditation to learn something, to move, uh, to you know, to um, establish some the good qualities, whatever it might be. Uh. This is the idea behind Zen mind, beginner's mind. Uh. So uh, it is not. I mean, these are just approximations. It's impossible to have a complete beginner's mind every time, uh, but it's just an idea to guide you in the right direction. Here, uh. all right, dear Ajahn, you mentioned reconditioning the mind, changing the perception. Uh. I've heard unconditioned state. Are uh, they all different? Please explain. Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, unconditioned state, yeah. Um yeah, that, <laughs> so reconditioning is the most important thing because we need to align our views and perceptions with the way the Buddha taught. Uh, unconditioned state? Well, It is a kind of a nice word it is used very sometimes by people when the thinking mind dies down and you have awareness that is left that is not really conditioned by the thinking mind because the thinking mind is gone it is not conditioned by thinking and so they call that in a very loose sense unconditioned state but it's not really unconditioned at all, really, because everything we experience is conditioned. If you go into a state of mind, it's conditioned by the fact that you are meditating. If you didn't meditate, you wouldn't achieve those states. If you, the quality of awareness you have in that state will depend from person to person, depending on your past conditioning and your spiritual qualities. How deep you go will depend on the profundity of your meditation. How you deal with it after you come out will depend on your personal qualities. So this idea that things are unconditioned is uh, is used in a very loose sense. An arahant doesn't is an arahant's mind unconditioned? It is unconditioned in the sense that it is no longer influenced or conditioned by defilements. In this sense, it is asankata. Asankata means actually unconditioned. So it is sankata in that sense, and it's asankatā in the sense that there is no rebirth afterwards. But even the Arahant's mind is conditioned. Right? What he thinks about, or she thinks about, what they do, whether they give a talk or not, will depend on the circumstances. Yeah, what, whether they, What they see, what goes into the mind, will depend on where they are. Okay, now I see this because I'm in Melbourne. If I was in Perth, I wouldn't see this, I would see something else. So the mind is conditioned by where you are. Conditioning just means that your experience, your mental experience, depends on all kind of factors. That is always true, regardless of how enlightened you are. So it is used in a very relative sense. And this idea, so it's important to kind of be clear what what is going on here. So reconditioning is really what is important because we want to recondition ourselves away from defilements and towards seeing the world as the Buddha says, the world is appropriate to see the world there okay Ajahn, your teaching are helping my practice greatly here that is wonderful to hear i'm very happy to hear that i have a question about stealing yeah yeah please don't steal that that's going to (laughs) help you practice even more Uh, sorry a few years ago i stole a few items from my toxic workplace Uh, how do i sort this out i am no longer there (laughs) okay (laughs) so this can happen to the best of people Uh, yeah stealing things from the toxic or even non-toxic workplace sometimes Uh, um, so how do you work it out. Sometimes you just forgive yourself and you move on. Uh, You don't worry about it. Uh, It may not... I mean, if you think that this still has an impact on some of those people, that they may be aware of it or they, someone feels bad about it, uh, maybe then you can go and ask for forgiveness and say, I did this, I'm really sorry, this was a mistake, Uh, I wish I hadn't. But if no one really is aware of it, no one really understood what is happening here, then uh, you can just move on, you don't have to worry about it. Uh, because, uh, you know, um, it's, it's, sometimes it's not going to be all that useful. The idea of forgiveness is important if we're carrying grudges or we're carrying something from the past. But if nothing is really carried from the past, then you can just shrug your shoulders, okay, just forgive yourself and move on. Uh. So it depends a bit on the situation, what, what happened at that particular time. Uh, uh, if you feel that it would be good to ask for forgiveness because maybe someone misunderstood or someone uh, is carrying something into the future then please do so it's always forgiveness is always good anyway yeah and if it you think it will make your heart feel lighter if you do it then also do it so um yeah the idea here is to establish good qualities that's kind of the purpose of all of this so uh yeah Okay. Dear Ajahn, thank you for your time to teach us. I am grateful for this. I have some questions regarding the ghost realm. All right, now we're getting into some interesting things. Not only one question, many questions. So if you think that one piece of paper means one question, that's not correct. One piece of paper means five, I think at the maximum I had was once 13 questions on one piece of paper. <laughs> yeah so you can <laughs> the people are really getting into it which is nice okay so let's have a look at the questions regarding the ghost realm number one are they around 24-7 or only specific times of the day or the month <laughs> well they, they are around 24-7 because they are living just like us right so they can't really they, they have to be around uh, but whether they bother you 24-7 that's a, diff- that's a different story here <laughs> so uh they uh so that really depends yeah? sometimes they will be around you because they want something from you huh? yeah if they are you know for example very often when someone has recently passed away that is the time when sometimes you can have a connection with somebody huh? and that can be a, a kind of ghosty connection huh? yeah and then you just wish them well you do some merit on their behalf i do this thing for you Mum. Huh? imagine how happy your Mum is uh, would be if you do something on her behalf right uh, it's a beautiful thing to do. After she passes away, your your dad or your your family member or whoever it is, uh, that is usually the most likely time when they are around. But there are always ghosts around. Uh, one of the nice suttas about ghosts uh, uh, is where, and I usually quote this particular sutta. is found in the Anguttara and the American American Discourse. Discourses, ten number hundred and sixty seven or something like that. I can't remember the exact number. Uh, and it's this fellow. He goes to the Buddha and he says. Uh, Uh, if I do an offering on behalf of my relatives, will they receive it? And the Buddha prize, well, it depends on where they are born. And he says, if they're born in the ghost realm, yes, then they will be able to receive it, otherwise not. And then uh, uh, this fellow, he says to the Buddha, he says, well, what if I don't have any relatives in this ghost realm? What happens then? And the Buddha says, it is impossible that you should not have any uh, relatives in the ghost realm because we've been going around this Angsaric existence for so long. Guaranteed, you will have some relatives there. And that's kind of nice. So if you ever do an act of generosity or merit for your departed uh, relatives, it will always reach somebody. There will always be somebody there who is grateful so please do it, yeah. Whenever you come, like to like, we are offering the food over here every day. Have you taken the opportunity to dedicate that to your departed relatives? Maybe you feel that you're not really—it's not really your food. It doesn't have so much power. That is true. It's not quite the same. But you can still do it, yeah. We are part here on this retreat. Presumably, you have—have have you paid? You've paid a little bit for coming here, right? Because that's kind of how things work. Otherwise, you wouldn't be eating anything, probably. <laughs> So you, you have a share in offering that food, right? So remember that. You have a share in that, so offer it. And as you do that, say to your relatives, I'm doing this for you. That is an opportunity right there to do it. Every day, every single day. Tomorrow, I expect to see all of you around that table <laughs> offering that food, because you want to make merit for the body, right? Wouldn't that be beautiful? Actually, it's a nice thing. You can start fighting to get space yeah, for your... <laughs> and, uh, but fight with friendliness, yeah? it's a friendly fight. Yeah. So this is what, he, what uh, the Buddha says, there's always someone there who is able to uh, receive that merit, uh, which is nice, yeah. so the ghosts are always around. Number two, what can we do to help them? I just told you that. Number three, if we see a ghost, what should we do? We should give it metta, you should give it kindness. Uh, you should say, hello ghost, nice to see you, <laughs> uh, yeah. welcome. Yeah, May you be well and happy boof, the ghost goes, uh, because uh, that, is it. that is what it's look, looking for. Uh. You should feel so lucky if you can see a ghost, remember that. Uh, I, because what you are doing, you're getting access, uh, you're seeing something that most people never see, uh, and you're getting an insight, access into a larger reality. And that is a wonderful thing when you do that, uh, especially when it is very clear that what is going on uh, you think, wow, this is really it. I've seen something that very few people see. You are so lucky. Because it means that you are gaining, uh, uh, you are kind of confirming some of our Buddhist uh, assumptions. Uh, that uh, you know, sometimes we say, yeah, yeah, okay, I have confidence in the Buddha. I believe in ghosts and rebirth and all that. But when these things get confirmed, it's far more powerful. Uh. So you should feel really, really lucky if you can get some access to these other realms uh. Number four, is the ghost realm consists of all types of spirits, including animals. Um, animals in the ghost realm? Not sure. There are animals in the Deva realms. We know that sometimes. Uh, like Nagas, that sort of thing. In the ghost realm, are there ghosts? Not entirely sure about that one. Are there animals in the ghost realm? Not sure. Sadara, any ideas? Not sure. Venable yeah. Santa, ghost Animals in the ghost realm? Okay, so we don't know. So uh, I, Okay, so ask Ajahn Brahm next time it comes. he comes. Will, he will let you know, whether animals in the ghost realm? There? So, you think so? Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. Is that intuition? It's yeah, intuition? Okay, intuition. Okay. Mysterious, mysterious that is true, that is true. Ajahn Brahm tells the story of the ghost dog. That's exactly yeah. right, yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so we will leave that to be to be decided. The last question. What to do about angry ghosts who seek revenge? Is that true or just Asian myth? (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Ghosts are suffering, right? Maybe they are angry, but they are in a lower realm. They don't really have much power over you. Now, the way to make sure that you are safe from any spirits and ghosts, whatever, is to live well. If you have good virtue, you will be safe. Yeah, this is kind of throughout the suttas these beings cannot harm you if you have good virtue uh, you know they often talk about black magic and these kind of things uh, if you want to be safe from black magic uh, then just be kind be a good person be generous do all the good things uh, black magic won't be able to touch you uh, that's good news isn't it uh, so uh, and I think often this idea of black magic is overstated anyway I don't really know how maybe sometimes uh, but a lot of the time I think are other things going on uh, so so uh, Okay, there you are. So uh yeah, ghosts. Uh, Ajahn Brahm was it? He would start telling ghost stories now. He's got so many ghost stories. That's that's the wonderful thing about Ajahn Brahm. He he uh, he really gets into those things. So. Anyway Dear Ajahn, it is said that joy is a prerequisite for samadhi. What can one do when one is sad and depressed because one is not able to follow the sila or practice meditation due to old age, sickness, frailty, and the vicious life circumstances. Wow, okay. <laughs> if one encounters Dhamma late in la- life, foundation of Sila is not very strong and easily shaken by pain, disability, unfavorable circumstances. How to generate enough joy to enable practicing of the meditation in these circumstances. Many thanks, Bhante. Um You just have to do your best. Uh, yeah. It is never too late to practice the Dhamma. You do whatever you can do uh, and uh, Uh, don't really expect to get joy. It doesn't matter so much if you do get joy or not. What matters is that if you live in the right direction, you're pointing in the right direction, that is what matters. uh. So just be kind, uh. be generous. uh. Do all of these kind of things. Do a little bit of meditation. Do it mostly to help you to be kind and generous. uh. If you don't get deep meditation sets, it's fine. uh. Remember, the foundation of the Buddhist path is not meditation. uh. This is, I think, one of those myths of uh, Buddhism, is that meditation is the most important thing. No, the most important thing is the things that lead to meditation, because without them, meditation can't even happen. Uh, What are those things? Uh, Kindness, uh, generosity, uh, a bit of right view, understanding how the world works. Uh, That is what is really important. Having compassion and metta for the people around. uh, That is what it really is about, and everyone can do that. Uh, yeah, we can use our speech and our actions in skillful ways. Uh, we can learn to think more wisely. Uh, that everyone can do. Uh, so don't be too concerned about what happens in your meditation. Use the meditation even just to relax, uh, even just to be at ease, uh, just to sit back. And if you snore, uh, wonderful, uh, you're relaxing, right? Uh, I always love it in a meditation someone at the very back starts snoring away. Uh, we, we had someone here as well before. Uh, and that's kind of cool yeah I I always feel compassion when I hear I think yeah okay relaxing good on you yeah snoring at the back there and then uh, you know so then then no one really disturbs you when you have kind of feel good about someone snoring at the back yeah so that just means you are chilling out so um, focus on what you can do Don't have high expectations for generating joy. Uh, if you have high expectations, uh, you may just get disappointed. Uh, enough disappointments in life already. Yeah, As you say, old age, pains and all kind of things, uh, it's difficult enough to deal with. Uh, so be kind to yourself. Uh, Ajahn Brahm always says that the best way to be happy is to reduce your expectations. Uh, so reduce them to zero. That's the state of the Arahant. No expectations at all. That's the Arahant state, uh, because uh, they're not interested in the future. Uh, Alright. Dear Ajahn, greetings and immense gratitude. That's a very good start. (laughs) Everything makes sense when I'm in the inner retreat. I curse myself as to how I could be so stupid, so as to react and get angry or give rise, give way to all the kilesas. Unfortunately, my health and life is in shambles, and I can't really attend any in-person retreats. As a result, despite knowing the future repercussions, I allow myself to be swayed by defilements. Sometimes, even at moments of anger, I know that I'm just harming myself, and all that is happening is non-self and my comma, yet look like a fool I still react. How to break this vicious circle? Many thanks. (laughs) so uh, okay so the um, answer is that you need a lot of time for yourself this is one of the most important things because our reactions come when we spend too much time around people who are difficult and we find it hard to deal with our kilesas get stirred up because we don't have enough time to reflect clearly after having been on a retreat you will find you are more at ease and peaceful it takes a while before the kilesas get reactivated strongly after retreat and that is because you had more space for yourself so give yourself more space try to find that space in your life yeah lock yourself in the toilet <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice you have a seat there there's a seat automatically in the toilet right so you can just sit down and you can relax so you just uh, but think about, you know, uh, try to understand where those kilesas come from. Do whatever counteraction is required. Uh, but you're right, sometimes it's difficult. Uh, sometimes your life circumstances are such, actually, it is very hard to get out of it, very difficult. Uh, and uh, sometimes you just have to have compassion for yourself. Okay, kilesas, sometimes they arise. Okay, so be it. Uh, do your best. Uh, don't expect perfection uh, Dear Ajahn, what are your advices to help a teenage with low self-esteem? The child is excellent in many ways, but seems to have lower assessment about himself. Thank you. I think teenage years are quite difficult. I remember myself as a teenager. I was not a very happy teenager either. Dukka, Dukka to be a teenager. Difficult years, and I would not be too concerned if the teenager has low self-esteem, because I think it's almost all teenagers have a bit of self-esteem problems. Uh, We are comparing ourselves stupidly with others, uh, superficially uh, looking at things in a kind of really stupid ways. uh, So don't worry too much about uh, your teenager. And uh, just the fact that you are the teenager's parent, you are a wise Buddhist, uh, you have some understanding of of these teachings, you give that teenager a lot of love and compassion. Uh, That is your job as a parent. Uh, Your job is not to create the perfect teenager. Your job is just to give them the foundations to make them be able to live their own life well. One of the most important things that we give it to... Uh, the people we love, uh, is that love, uh, is that kindness, is that compassion. Uh? If someone feels loved by others and and appreciated by others, they gain self-value, they gain self-worth, uh, they gave, give them a ballast uh, that they can use later on in life. Uh. If you get those things when you are young, uh, then later on in life you always have a certain sense of self-worth because you were given that as a child. Uh. So love your teenager to bits. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, appreciate them uh, to the best best possible way that you can, uh, yeah, and uh, they will feel valued later on in life. Don't be too concerned about their low self esteem now, because this is part or parcel of going through things as a teenager. Huh? Teenagers are difficult, uh, and uh, then I think that is what we should do. Don't have any expectations for your child, right? Uh, don't think there should be one way or another. Huh? Maximize their potential simply by loving them, having no expectations. Huh? You don't know who your child is. Your child is someone who comes from a deep past in a previous life. You cannot expect to shape them according to your wishes. They will have to go their own way. And your job is just to love them, regardless of what they do. They may be a complete failure in school. So be it. They may end up as a drug addict. They can still have a good heart, even if you are a drug addict. Remember that. Drug addict is not as bad as being a criminal. That is a bit worse. But even if they are a criminal, still love that child, because they just have been conditioned in the wrong way. And if you love them in these conditions, you give them the greatest chance to get out of that difficult situation that they are in. Never give up on anyone in the world. Everyone has a chance to be reconditioned. The best way to do that is to give them that love and compassion and understanding and kindness as they grow up. Anyway, I don't have any kids, so it's easy for me to save. I feel a bit hypocritical here, but anyway, so good luck, I suppose. All right. <clears throat> Dear Ajahn, is it possible to see past lives? Yes, I have heard of great seers like Ajahn Anand who can see your past, my past, or or, or someone someone's past maybe, okay. Um, okay, don't know, maybe he can. I, I'm not sure about that. Uh, from my perspective... If one could see past lives, it would lead to total disenchantment and libida. I do firmly believe in rebirth, but seeing previous uh, rebirths would certainly uh, furiously work on the path. Many thanks. Absolutely. Um, The idea that you can see the past life of others, uh, is not really very well established in the sutta. It's is about remembering your own past lives. That is the most important thing anyway, because as you rightly point out, what you are really seeing is dukkha. You're seeing suffering. here, And if you see your own suffering in the past, seeing other people suffering is always a bit, little bit distant from you. Seeing your own suffering here. Seeing that you have made the same mistakes in life after life after life. Uh, seeing you going through divorces, death, being kicked out of your job, pains and problems. Yes, there are highs, yes, there are happinesses sometimes, uh, but they're always punctuated by some, something going bad. It always ends in death. Every life ends in death. Everything you have built up in every life ends in having to give it up. Uh, death is the end point always, uh, and that is why it is always punctuated by suffering if you don't know how to deal with these things in the right way. And so it is very, very traumatic to read your, see your past lives yeah, because you start to understand the enormity of samsaric existence. And I think this is exactly why the Buddha-to-be remembered his past lives before he was able to see non-self. Because seeing non-self is incredibly hard and you need... A very powerful impetus to see that. You have to see the enormity of the problem. Only then are you willing to give up even your sense of self because you see the problem is so vast. So yes, you are right. So how can we approximate to this? And one way of approximating to this, if you cannot see your own lives, is to read stories of other people who have had things like near-death experience or have recalled past lives. The more reliable and the more real those stories seem, the better because they will really affect you more deeply if they seem real and i read a book recently called after by a fellow called bruce Grayson. bruce grayson is probably the world's number one lead leading authority on near-death experiences he is at the uh, the um, uh, division for perceptual studies at the university of virginia in the u.s it's a very good university very reputable and they do these kind of uh, experiments And uh, this book called After, it's like stories. And when you read them, you cannot help to be touched by them. These are real people telling about real experiences. And because Bruce Grayson is a scientist, he goes into possible explanations and all of these kind of things. And there's an element to these things that are very, very hard to explain through kind of ordinary means. And this is very powerful. Sometimes you read them and you you get emotionally affected uh, by these stories, uh, yeah? they're very strong. Yeah? And uh, that is kind of how sometimes you can approximate, instead of remembering your past lives, uh, you can actually do other things that give you similar kind of feeling, nowhere near as deep, uh, but they are similarly lead- leading you in that direction. Uh. So that is what, uh, what you can do. Uh. And uh, then, it is possible to remember your past lives down the track, but you're going to have to get your meditation reasonably well together first. Uh. Actually, probably really well together, actually. uh, uh. Dear Ajahn, can we do Samatha practice with open eyes? Uh, I've heard that people can go into jhanas even while walking and sitting with open eyes. Uh. So while waiting for the doctor's appointment, say for example, can we observe our breath with open eyes and deepen our practice? Sure, you can do that. Uh, remember that uh, uh, it uh, uh, it is decided by how you feel. If it makes you feel peaceful, calm, and it leads you in the right direction, it is good. I would recommend you to close your eyes. Might as well close your eyes while you're waiting for the doctor. If, you know he's probably going to say something anyway, right? When he comes out, you can, might as well close your eyes. So, but whatever works for you, uh, if it has a positive effect, then it's good. Uh. Can you enter jhana while walking? No. Why? Because uh, jhanas are a state where you lose all awareness of the body and the five senses, and doing that while, while you're walking is not really recommended. Uh. And uh, so, even if it's possible, it's not recommended. Uh. So,. Uh, <laughs> And certainly not with open eyes. I, I mean, if your eyes are open while you go into jhana, you will go blind anyway. <laughs> yeah, This is kind of the point, because you're turning off the sight of eye, the, the eyesight. You're actually turning it off. So even if your eyes are open, there will come a point when suddenly everything just goes. But that is hard to do if your eyes are open. So it's not really it's much better to close your eyes, because that is kind of a halfway stage between seeing And turning off the sight of eye, uh, the eyesight, uh, the uh, faculty of seeing. uh. So it doesn't really make sense to go into jhana with your eyes open. uh, Much better to close your close your eyes. uh. So okay. Dear Ajahn, how does one know that one is in Kanika or Upachara Samadhi? uh? Once you are in these, uh, how far are you from Jhanic states? uh? Uh, kanika Samadhi very far from Jhannic states. So, kanika Samadhi means momentary Samadhi here it is a word that you find I think few times in the Vasudha and many many more times in the sub-commentaries actually I once I once did a count of how, how many times these terms exist in the suttas and they are very rare Kanika Samadhi only occurs something like 20 times in all Pali literature it's actually very very rare and uh, i Then I searched on jhana. Jhana occurs a thousand times in the four Nikayas. Four main Nikayas, this is just the basic suttas, it occurs a thousand times. Kanika Samadhi occurs zero times in the suttas, twenty times in the broader Pali literature. That gives you an idea of how utterly insignificant and utterly... It doesn't matter, forget about Kanika Samadhi. The word itself is um, misleading because momentary samadhi, the way it is used in the sutta, samadhi means a continual focus on one object that doesn't change. Kanika samadhi is the idea that you're staying with changing phenomena. Phenomena continuous changing and it is called samadhi because you don't look at anything else. But That's very different from the way samadhi is taught in the suttas, where basically you stay with one thing. Samma samadhi is an unchanging object, not a changing object. So we're moving into a completely different area of uh, mental cultivation when we talk about these things. Uh, so don't even think about these terms. Yeah? They are completely irrelevant. Uh, vipassanajana, Kanika Samadhi, these are the same kind of terminology. Uh, they are utterly irrelevant because the Buddha never used them. Uh, they are later additions and even, even then they are very rare. Uh, Upachara samadhi is much more interesting because upachara samadhi is neighborhood concentration or access stillness, uh, and it's a thing that happens just before you enter samadhi or just after you come out of samadhi. That's when you have upachara samadhi. That is more interesting because um, uh, that is closer, much much closer to jhana. Yeah, when you come to upachara samadhi, you are literally on the doorstep to jhana. Uh, but um, Don't try to gain deep insight into upachara samadhi. The deepest insight happens after the jhana states. When you come out of them, that's when you have more information to work with, more power of the mind. That state is also called upachara samadhi, in the sense that it is close to jhana and it is a very pure state of the mind. That is the main thing you should look for. But even the word upachara samadhi is not found in the suttas. It is a commentarial kind of terminology. So, actually, uh, it is probably not very important. Uh, What is important is samma samadhi, the samadhi that is described in the suttas, uh, the kind of things that we're looking at today leading up to samadhi. Uh, You can give that uh, the word, the name, upachara samadhi, if you like, but uh, sometimes best just to keep it to the uh, sutta terminology. Uh. Okay, I've got a few more questions. I'm going to just go through them. It's getting a little bit late, so if you have to go, please feel free to do so. Uh, I just am afraid if I don't go through this today, tomorrow is going to be an immense uh, pile to go through. So, uh, yeah. Dear Ajahn, in usual meditation retreats, we are just following our breath or given instructions to do so, but no one actually asks us to do go systematically through the 16 steps of Anapanasati. Uh, we don't actually look at the breath body uh, and still, still it uh, and so on. Uh, uh, to to ja, to uh, and so so forth so forth. Okay, is that enough, or does one have to go through all sixteen steps in any meditation sitting here to realize the final truth? So, many thanks, Ajahn. Um, so. <laughs> Yes, this is kind of standard practice. In yeah, meditation, you sit down and you're told to watch your breath. And that has already gone wrong already right there. Because this is the wrong way. You don't just go straight to the breath. First of all, you have to set your mind up in the right way. So a lot of the practice is really about setting your mind up. It is the preliminary stages or information in the Anapanasati Sutta. Yeah? Um, sitting down, putting your body straight and establishing mindfulness. Yeah? Establishing mindfulness comes first, only then do you do the breath meditation. So a lot of the instructions that I give here is about establishing mindfulness. Like the death contemplation, a very simple death contemplation, the purpose is simply to establish mindfulness. This is the most important thing. Once mindfulness is established, only then can you do breath meditation. That is the first thing that is missing from the vast majority of meditation retreats. And very often the reason is that the original founder of that meditation system has died a long time ago. Now they just play his recordings. And then you have assistant teachers who don't really say anything other than the founder said. They don't really know what to say And the whole system starts to fall apart. So it's a little bit unfortunate that kind of meditation. It should really be, the teacher should be there to be able to answer questions properly. Otherwise it's really problematic in my opinion. Uh, Should we go through the 16 steps? Yes, you should go through them, but you can't make yourself go through them. You have to allow the 16 steps to arise. So it's very important to know about them so you have the map in your mind. You know what's supposed to happen, but you don't make them happen. You get out of the way and you allow the 16 step to happen. That is really the right way. So you enjoy the breath meditation and then however far you get will depend on the qualities of your mind at that particular time. That is the right attitude. So hopefully we can look more, maybe next year we can have a look at the uh, Anapanasati Sutta in greater detail. But I have done it before, so you can also listen to recordings of of me or anyone else uh, and get some ideas of how that works. Dear Ajahn, could you please elaborate on how to do sunyata meditation practice? Uh, Much gratitude. Uh, (laughs) So um, sunyata meditation practice is really to notice what is not present. Uh, this is how it is described in the Majimarika 121 the shorter discourse on emptiness the chula sunyata sutta and you notice what is absent and then as you notice what is absent you go deeper and deeper and deeper through that simple thing yeah so that can be conjoined with breath meditation yeah and you can see things fading away and then you take it deeper and deeper simply by noticing the absence and then uh, moving the mind towards greater absence because you understand the power, the beauty and the uh, happiness that comes with absence. Uh, you're guiding your mind towards absence, uh, to emptiness, uh, and you rejoice in that emptiness uh, as it happens. Uh, something like that. I, uh, you know, uh, That seems to be the way it is described in the suttas. Uh, I'm going a little bit fast now because of the uh, number of questions left. Uh, dear Ajahn, uh, Uh, Very hard for slaves and bonded labor to see that everyone is suffering and trapped uh, when their employers are lavishly enjoying life. (laughs) How to be compassionate and forgiving when uh, a situation seems to be so unbalanced. Uh, You mentioned the other day that we are all similar to people uh, in... uh, Ukraine, so all of us go through wars, famines, tsunamis, also royal life, happy circumstances irrespective of our comma so how could uh, ha, so how could be I be queen next lifetime or so I could be the queen or the uh, refugee in the next lifetime exactly uh, that 's right, yeah, more likely to be a refugee though queen <laughs> diff- very few people get to be the queen right so uh, or the king or whatever it is uh, Oh, right, yeah. So um yes, it is it is difficult. But you know, this is kind of so it it is hard to see these things. It is difficult when you are the slave. Sure, of course. Uh, I hope you're not a slave. I would be. But uh, it is harder. So you just have to work with these perceptions gradually. Yeah, understand that we're always all shifting positions. In the past you were the master. You were whipping those slaves. Yeah. That's really painful to know that you have probably been oppressing people in that way. It's very painful knowledge. And when you get that, you start to have compassion for yourself because you realize that, yes, you were whipping those slaves, but you didn't really know what you were doing. You were also doing that for whatever other reason. Maybe there was some someone who was forcing you to do that. That was your job, you didn't have any choice, whatever. Yeah, You can always look at it from that point of view. So put yourself in the position of the other person then it's easier to have compassion and understanding how we are all trapped in these things. So work on these things carefully and gently and then the solutions start to arise. You find the way out of uh, these things. And eventually, you can have compassion for everyone. Dear Ajahn, Doing nothing means not getting involved with the ways of the world. My spouse always quotes Ajahn Brahm and says nothing should be done. Just rest and take it easy. Also, there is a story by Ajahn about the messy garden being perfect. My spouse used that story as an excuse and always complains <laughs> that I try to keep things tidy. Also, you mentioned... read. Joyce, when you lose your job, uh, and agreed, one can devote more life to the Dhamma. But who is going to pay the bill? So please, let <laughs> on doing that thing. Thanks, we gratitude. Uh. So uh, you know, you um, <laughs> the, the the garden is okay. If it's messy, it's okay. If it is if it is nice, it's also okay, right? If you want to work in your garden, you want to make it nice. For good, you know, that's okay. It's nothing wrong with that. Uh. Uh, but there's also nothing wrong with not having a nice garden. Everything is basically okay. Whatever you want to do, what matters is not whether the garden is a mess or not. What matters is not whether you have a job or not. What matters is whether you are heading in the right direction. Spiritually, that is what matters. And that is the only question you should really ask yourself. Uh, are you building up good qualities and reducing the bad ones? That is what matters. And you and your spouse uh, may have different ways of doing that. Uh, yeah. For your spouse, leave the garden alone. For you, work in the garden. Yeah, is the best way to develop good qualities. For your spouse, quit their job. For you, job work hard. Yeah, because that's kind of you. You got to pay the bills, as you say. So there are different ways of doing these things. It is not one way is right, the other one is wrong. But sometimes doing nothing can be very beautiful. Yeah, often in life, I think this is one of the reasons why Ajahn Brahm emphasizes this because we do too much. We are compulsive doers. And so the idea is to do less so you can become more peaceful. I think that's why he emphasizes it. But remember that what matters for you is not whether you do things or not. What matters is whether you're heading in the right direction. That is all that matters. And if you are, good on you. If you're not, change your ways. (laughs) Yeah, That's really what it comes down to. So uh, yeah, and then you and your spouse, you can live peacefully in harmony, even though you have different outlooks. What a wonderful thing! Yeah. <laughs> okay, a couple of more questions. Dear Ajahn, thank you for your teachings regarding perceptions of diversity versus unity. Is this related to the perception of thisness, thatness, versus suchness? <laughs> Regarding thing, uh, regarding things, experiences, states, uh, and uh, thus the craving uh, uh, to more from this to that. Uh, um. I I think. I think this is probably reading too much into it. Uh, because the perception of diversity is uh, it's just that the mind is not unified, yeah, and that perception of diversity can be very simple it doesn't really mean that the mind goes from one thing to another and craves one thing or another, uh, maybe in a very, very subtle way, but not in any ordinary way. Yeah? The diversity just means that you are aware of many things uh, you're aware of boundaries uh, of edges of things uh, yeah you're not aware of a sim- simple thing yeah that can be fairly peaceful, but it's not fully unified. So um, does it imply a very refined craving? Maybe it does re- imply a very, very refined craving because the mind is moving a little bit, not fully unified. Maybe you're right about that. Um, but uh, generally speaking, I would say that this really is just about diversity versus unity. Suchness, ta-ta-ta, is one of these words that you sometimes hear in buddhist circles uh, and i'm not sure exactly what people mean by that uh, yeah, the way that i would interpret suchness is just that this is the way things are don't get involved this the way, th- the, way the world is is the way the world is uh, no need to get upset about it just go with the flow or something like that uh, that is kind of what i would 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 see these things as dependent origination impermanence or whatever uh, i'm not sure how Im- applicable it is to this particular situation uh, Anyway, so uh, yeah, little bit, not entirely sure exactly what you mean by this, but uh, hopefully that will be a little bit helpful. Last questions for tonight. Dear Ajahn, thank you so much for your inspiring teaching. Could you please explain if there are any difference between the ability to be aware and consciousness and knowing? Uh, is it different from perception? Which one is the one that needs to be developed? Thank you, Ajahn. So, um, awareness and consciousness and knowing—it depends how you use these words. That's the problem, right? We use words in different ways, so it depends on definitions. And that is where the problem arises already. But awareness usually just means that you—that you, that you are—you have—you are attending to something. Yeah, attention is there. You are aware. Knowing. Can mean the same as awareness. You know that something is there, but knowing often also means something deeper. It often implies understanding as well, and all of these kind of things. So it depends on what you mean by these words. Is it different from perception? Perception is one aspect of knowing, right? So perception is how we understand the world. It's our ability, our ability to differentiate and understand the world. When I see all of you here, that's perception. I see people. I see meditation cushions, meditation mats. I see a room. I see other monks. I see uh, the honorable ranjani over here sitting on the chair she's one she's the mother of the Bhikkhuni sangha almost in the in the in, almost in the whole Theravada world. It was really cool, so we're very really happy about that we I see a clock over there ticking too fast. That means I should speak a little bit faster here. So These are perceptions, right? Perceptions are our ability to make sense of the world. Uh, consciousness is just the ability to know, the ability to be aware. Uh, so perception is what kind of makes, makes sense of things. And that is why perception should be developed. Uh, whereas consciousness uh, uh, is not so obvious how you develop consciousness. Perception, very obvious how you should develop because perception is like, if I see you, I can see a friend or an enemy here. Uh, I don't see any enemies here. Whew, okay. <laughs> Have you heard? That? Old friends, which is good. Uh, and that is where you develop your perception. You can change an enemy into a friend, right? That's a change in perception. Uh, I can change a feeling of permanence into impermanence, uh, coming closer to the way the Buddha saw things. Uh, and so perception is what we are dealing with, because that is how we make sense of the world. Uh, Consciousness, you could argue that you develop it in the sense that you go deeper into meditation. So when you go deeper into meditation, your consciousness changes in the sense that the object changes, in the sense that you are abandoning certain consciousnesses and going to more refined ones, letting go of the sensory consciousness and going to the mind consciousness, and then developing that mind consciousness into more and more refined states. But perception is the most important one. That's the most basic one. Uh, and that's where we should go. Uh. I have good news. Uh, the last question has been finished for tonight. Uh. So as always, I wish you a very good night. Please have a wonderful rest, a good night's sleep. Uh, and then we'll see you back again tomorrow morning. And let us finish off the evening as usual by doing the Arahang samma Sam Buddha together uh.